If you have uh, elementary age kids, we'd love for them to go and be a part of what we have with our Vine Kids time. There's Mr. Jeff right there. He would love to walk our kids back and let them be a part of what we have happening. So it's, uh, it's, it is, it's another bittersweet Sunday for me, right? Because I, I mean, I know that we wrapped up Acts a couple of months ago, but I've still really been for two months, really still exploring that book in depth as we've kind of looked at these larger lessons. You mean to carry you, heal you, whatever we need to do to get you off stage. So, <laughs> here's a totally un, uh, story that it has nothing to do with anything, but I'll tell it anyway. So when we were building the space out and we have the city inspector was here, they made us put a ramp out back, which is where Scott's going. It actually goes into the storage space we have there. And it's required by the city uh, for ADA reasons. And so uh, we were walking to the inspector and it was kind of a last minute deal. We didn't know we had to have it. We were walking through. He's like, well, you got to put a ramp back here. You have to. The city code. And it literally goes, stretches here and it goes clean all the way over there. And I was like, why did they put a ramp? He was like, well, it's got to be wheelchair accessible so people can get out. I go, well, we're just going to heal them. They can walk right out. And he thought that was pretty funny. And so, um, but we still had to put a ramp in there. So uh, anyway, so that's, um, no, so anyway, it has nothing to do with anything, but so bittersweet. Here we are, lesson six, uh, our study of the book of Acts, every word, every verse, uh, kind of coming to a close and then looking at these big overarching lessons. And this is our sixth one. And we're going to wrap all that up. And then next week we're moving into a few new things. And then we've got Advent and then we're going to launch into some great stuff in the, uh, in the spring. Uh, but we've, we've sort of took this bigger approach to the book of Acts as we finished it up and said, what are the bigger lessons that we're learning here? What are the bigger things that are at play that we kind of see not just in the book of Acts, but we see Acts pointing us to that are actually bigger principles in scripture. And we used Acts as sort of a, a launching place to say, what are some lessons that we learned from our study through this book? And how do we see those played throughout scripture? And we kind of looked at a, a bunch of different things. But the first one we looked at is that we exist as followers of Christ, we exist as a sent people. And we talked about how we exist not to be living here within these walls to maintain ourselves and to feel really good about our sort of collection of church people, but we exist to be sent out there, that you and I exist as a sent people into the cracks and crevices of culture, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church is the vehicle by which the Holy Spirit uses to send the gospel into the world. And we sort of explored that. The second lesson we talked about was that as followers of Christ, we've been promised and given the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we aren't sent into the world with our own power as lone rangers. But what we see happening in Acts at Pentecost is the Holy Spirit fills and literally indwells in the life of a believer. And we explored what that looks like to have the indwelling spirit and how that changes the way that we think about our own life and even our own mission and purpose and place in the world. Third lesson we talked about was how as followers of Christ, we are called to a radically altered worldview. And we broke this one into three parts. And we talked about how we should see people differently because Jesus saw people differently and how we should see even ourselves differently, how it changes the way that I see my own calling. And then finally, how we see things. And we talked about sort of the picture that the church in Acts had about their stuff and about uh, possessions and how following Christ, I should have a radically altered worldview about those things that I can't find myself in the way the world says we see people or we see, I should see myself or we see, see things and kind of explore that. Then our fourth lesson, Brandon talked about how as followers of Christ, literally the gospel of Jesus Christ is for 
everyone. And the incredible good news that we have been grafted into this a kind of promise of God that the gospel is for you and it's for me and it is for everyone. And the call of the church uh, to be about taking that message to the world. And then last week, uh, we talked about um, obedience. And we talked about how, as followers of Christ, obedience is the greatest privilege. And that most of us see obedience as things that we have to do, like God is calling me to give this up, or God is calling me to go here to do that. And we spend most of our time wrestling with God for control. But really, that obedience is the part of me that gets to say yes to God. It's the part of me that says, God, you are in control of everything, and I trust you, and I believe you, and so I want my life to say yes to you. And it's not a duty or some kind of activity I have to do, but it is an incredible privilege to follow you. And that Paul and his companions and those three missionary journeys in the book of Acts, they found it great, incredible joy to follow Jesus all over the place, uh, other countries, even just down the street. And they loved the call and the privilege of saying yes to Jesus. And we talked about what that would look like for our lives. Well, today we're going to wrap it all up um, with this sixth lesson, which is really this, that even in the darkest night, God is always and forever at work. Now, last week I reminded you that the book of Acts is broken up into three main sections. You've got the first section, which focuses on sort of the birth and movement of the church, starting at Pentecost and going all the way up to the really first kind of wave of persecution uh, of, of, uh, of Herod. And that whole first section is really about how the church came to be and its first movements together. The second section in Acts goes from about 12 to about chapter 20, and it's all about the missionary journeys. It's about Paul and his companions taking about 12 years to go over 10,000 miles following Jesus into some of the most unknown uh, and unseen places as they take the gospel into the world. And then the final section is really uh, about Paul's return to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit calls Paul to go back to Jerusalem into this incredibly hostile environment. And then ultimately the trials he would face and his kind of journey to Rome where he would find himself under house arrest waiting to face trial before Nero before Caesar. This morning, we're going to focus on that third section is where we're kind of pulling this lesson from. And if you were with us in our journey, you remember that that last section of the book is, well, it's really hard. It's really challenging. It's three years of incredible difficulty that Paul goes into Jerusalem where he faces betrayal and he faces arrest and he faces imprisonment. He gets kind of sentenced He's nearly killed, a couple of murder plots. He's transferred around to different cities where he faces three different trials where ultimately he's put on a ship, found himself in a shipwreck, bit by snakes, all to end up in Rome where he is waiting to stand trial for his very life in front of the most brutal emperor Rome would ever know, Nero. The guy that would launch the persecution wave that would kill tens of thousands of believers. And that last section, that three years, was marked by hardship and trial and shipwreck and loneliness and snake bites and imprisonment and wondering and longing and loneliness of what it looks like. Yet we see God all through that movement and period being very much at work for his glory. And so as I started thinking about bigger lessons that we learned, I started thinking about how true this is throughout scripture, that even in those moments where we don't have answers, in those dark nights, and Paul had those dark nights where he was alone or when he was on a ship that was about to be capsized, and you wonder, God, where are you in the middle of all of this? That when we read scripture, we can trust and believe that God is always and forever at work. And this morning, we're going to be in the book of John exploring that idea 
with some of Jesus' closest friends that are going through an incredible period of grief and hurt and wondering some of those same questions. And what we're going to get to see is that God is always at work for his glory. And in your life, even in those dark times, God is always and forever at work. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 17. Um, so before we, while you're getting there and kind of before we open up, let's take a moment and let's pray together and we'll turn our time over to the Lord this morning. <clears throat> God, I am deeply grateful for how you love us. I'm deeply grateful for worship and for your word that is timeless and that is true. I'm grateful that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. I'm grateful, God, that even in my most unforeseen moments and my moments of loneliness or despair or hurt or pain or anguish, God, I'm grateful that I, I trust and believe that you are at work, that you are always moving. And so, Lord, as we open this text today and, and as we explore these things together, I pray that you would move in us in whatever individual way you need to, God, to remind us of your faithfulness and your goodness and your love, Lord, and that you are are a God who is deeply involved in the lives of people. Take a moment in your heart, just as you sit here this morning, and just ask God to teach you something. I don't know what it is. I don't know what he wants to tell you this morning, but just ask the Lord to teach your heart. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know them. We do this every week. Be in the habit of praying for other people. We want to be a church that is convicted to pray for the people around us. Just pray, that, pray for them. Pray that God would move in their heart this morning. Lord, we turn our morning over to you. We ask you to teach our hearts. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So John 11 is a very familiar <clears throat> passage because one of the greatest miracles in all of Scripture takes place in John 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? And so if you've been in church at all in your life, uh, you've probably heard the name Lazarus or have you at least heard the story of how Jesus did this sort of miraculous thing. Jesus had a really incredible relationship with Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Um, he loved them. In fact, John eleven five tells us that he had this special, deep love relationship with them. They were close friends. And we know Mary and Martha from the, the account of where Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha's working really hard at the kitchen, and they kind of have this little altercation. And Jesus tells Martha that Mary's doing what's right. And remember, she's doing the one thing that matters. And we, we know them from there, and Jesus spent time with them in Bethany. And <clears throat> in John chapter 11... Jesus learns that Lazarus is, is incredibly sick. And some people tell him, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Your friend, Lazarus, the, the brother of Mary and Martha, is sick. And Jesus tells his disciples that the sickness won't end in death, but that God is going to be glorified. And so they don't race off to Bethany. In fact, they kind of return to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem and Bethany are about two miles apart. They kind of return to Jerusalem and just wait a little bit, Right? Well, John 17 is going to pick up as uh, we learn that Lazarus has actually died. And, and we're going to focus this morning not so much on the interaction of the miracle itself, but on what's taking place in the hearts of Mary and Martha and even Jesus. So um, let's move to chapter 11, verse 17, and we'll read it, and then we'll just kind of talk through it. <clears throat> so verse 17 says, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. 
Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary stayed at home. Look, Martha said to Jesus, or Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who was and is and came into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. And Mary heard this. She got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Well, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not have opened the the eyes of the blind? Could he not have kept this man from dying? Well, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb, and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha, the sister of the dead man, uh, by this time there is a bad odor, for he had been there for four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And we had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take the grave clothes off and let him go. So long story, but it's one that's somewhat familiar because we've we've heard the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But what we're really going to pay attention to is what's unfolding in the hearts of Mary and Martha and even Jesus himself. So Jesus returns to Jerusalem and he's outside of town and he is essentially just waiting. He had heard that Lazarus was sick. He had told his disciples that Lazarus wasn't going to uh, die or actually said he's not going to end in death. And he goes and he waits. And when they arrive in Jerusalem, they get word because only two miles from Bethany, they get word that Lazarus had died. And Martha makes her way out because she had heard that Jesus was nearby and she makes her way out and she goes to the place where Jesus is and it says that she looks at him and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, right? But even now I believe that whatever you ask for, the Father will give you. And Jesus looks at her and he says, your brother will rise again. And she says, I I know that. I believe that. I believe there will be a, a day of reckoning, a day of atonement, an a end day where he will, he will rise. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the one, the son of God. Right? Have this really sort of emotional interaction, a very similar interaction that he ends up having with Mary. 
So Martha returns and she gets Mary and she says, the teacher's here and he wants to see you. She pulls her off to the side. And so Mary scurries out of the house really quickly and she goes to the exact same place and Jesus hasn't moved, walking about two miles from Bethany to where he was outside of Jerusalem. And the people that are there, the mourners that are there, see her get up and they go with her. Now mourning is, is very different than we do here in the States. It was a, it was a week or a 10 long, day, uh, 10 long kind of day event where a lot of people would gather and they would wail and they would scream and they would beat their chest. And, and there would be people that were even there hired, pay, uh, you'd hire a flute player, you'd even hire mourners to come in and they would wail and spill out of the streets. And it was this very visible thing that took place. And we learned that they were so close to Jerusalem that some of their friends came from Jerusalem to Bethany. And so there were a lot of people and they were mourning deeply because they loved Lazarus and they loved Mary and Martha. Well, Mary gets up to go see Jesus and she scurries out and this group of people is like, well, I guess she's going to go to the tomb. We should probably go with her. And so they follow her, but she doesn't go to the tomb. She goes to Jesus and she says when she sees him, all right, John records that she falls at his feet. And she says they almost the exact same thing as her sister did. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus stands her up and he says, where have you laid him? And she says, well, come and, and, and I'll show you. And then verse 1135, or chapter 11, verse 35 says, Jesus wept, moved. He loved Lazarus. He loved Mary, loved Martha. He wept. And the Jews that were there that were mourning, look at that and they said, man, he really loved this guy, but isn't this the same Jesus that like gave sight to the blind? Surely he could have done something, right? They've got questions. Why didn't he step in? Why didn't he, he save Lazarus? So they go to the tomb, and they get there, and it says that Jesus sees everybody again, and once more he is deeply moved. And that, that, that verse, Jesus wept, that word actually in the Greek is, is not the same word for mourning. That's this visible, deep kind of outcry and screaming and wailing. It's actually a very personal word that means like softly crying. So you get this sense that Jesus is moved and that, that idea that he has gathered with these people and he sees Mary and Martha and their grief and he sees these gathered people who loved him and he's moved once more. And he gets to the tomb and he says, take the stone away. And Martha basically looks at him and says, hey, I, I love you, but we can't do that. Like he's been dead for four days, four days. If we roll that stone away, it's not gonna be good. And Jesus says, do you not believe that I have told you some things about me, right? Do you not believe? And she says, okay. And so they roll the stone away. And Jesus, in this very public kind of prayer, says, Father, I know that you always hear me. But I'm, I'm praying this for the benefit of the people around me so they can see who you are and that you have sent me. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out and he's still wrapped in these grave clothes, this incredible miracle. And Jesus says, take him off. And then that's really it. And then John kind of moves into some other things. We tend to get really hung on the miracle moments that we see Jesus do because rightly so, they're incredible, right? I mean, this is, I mean, this is unheard of. I mean, Jesus raised this guy. Now, he'd been dead for four days, and four days is a very important number because in Eastern religion, and even in some rabbinical teaching, they believed that when someone died, their spirit rose and hovered around the area for three days. And after three days, the spirit could not return to the body, and it went into an afterworld. 
and that person was dead forever. So four days would mean this guy was really dead. There was no mistaking that. And Jesus does this incredible miracle. But when I begin to look at the peripheral things going on around, you begin to see some really powerful things. And there's some things I want you to see. There's like three or four of them. The first one is this, is that in life, pain and hurt are very real. Now, I know that sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, right? Because you know that and I know that. But I want you to hear me say it again. I want to explain it to you. Because in life, pain and hurt are very real. Most of us have been told as followers of Christ that we have to be afraid of words like doubt, afraid of words like pain, afraid of words like fear, afraid of those kind of movement words, that we should be happy and joyful, and that if we are not, there is something wrong with our faith, that if we have deep and real doubts about whether or not all this is real, that there is something inherently wrong with me. And that in a moment of grief or pain, I am somehow supposed to take all of those things, all of those lemons, and make Jesus-flavored lemonade, right? I'm supposed to somehow look at all that stuff and say, even in all of this, like, it is still good. And the truth is that pain and hurt are very real, but we have been told that we have to cover those things up somehow. Because somehow they're a front to our faith. That if my heart is broken, somehow I am lacking the faith to believe that God is good. But the truth is, is that in Scripture, we see pain and hurt happening in the lives of people all the time. You could hear it in both Mary and Martha's cry. They love Jesus. In fact, Martha even says that she believed Jesus could do anything. That even now, God would still heal her or heal him. That God could still do something miraculous. Yet both of them have the exact same response. They both go out of their way two miles to the area outside of Jerusalem, and Mary falls at his feet, and Martha comes right up to his face, and they say this, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would be alive. Now think for just a moment what is wrapped up in that statement. In other words, Jesus, I believe so deeply in who you are that if you would be here, I wouldn't be walking through what I'm walking through. They weren't questioning Jesus' ability or his divinity. They were questioning his presence in the middle of their deep and real pain. But see, we don't wear our pain on the outside in this culture. We take it and we suppress it and shove it down. And we sure don't share it with our community of Christ followers because nobody else has to go through what I go through because we walk in here looking like we've got it all together. We walk in here with a perfect family structure and all our little church clothes on and we never really share truth with each other. And so we perpetuate the lie that living in pain and hurt is somehow wrong. But pain and hurt, let me tell you, are very real. And Mary and Martha and even these other mourners Man, they believed it and they felt it and they lost someone that they loved deeply and that pain was real. But there's something even more underlying those questions that Mary and Martha ask. Lord, if you would have been here. So we know that pain and hurt are real. The second thing I want you to hear is this, is that in your pain and in your broken heartedness, God is not indifferent. Now, there's something just under the surface 
of Mary and Martha's questions, just under the surface of what they're asking, and that is this, God, do you even care? Now, you want to talk about another explosive question. And they don't explicitly say this, but you can kind of feel it right underneath what they're asking, which is, here I am walking through the middle of all this pain, and you could have stopped it. You could have shown up, you could have healed him, you could have kept him from dying. That's what they're saying. In other words, I am going through deep, real pain, and you could have done something about it, and you didn't. Do you even care what is happening inside of me? Are you indifferent? Now, I don't know about you. I've been there. I've stood there in the middle of real pain, knowing full well that God could have done something, that God could have spared my heart, that God could have made it so it wasn't so difficult, but he didn't. And it's a question we never want to ask out loud, so we kind of inaudibly shove it down below the bottom set of our prayers, but it is there under the surface, nagging and nagging away. God, do you even care? And that's one that none of us will ever say out loud. But what we see in this text is really powerful. And I think it's one of the most incredible pictures that we see in Scripture that shows us just how deeply God cares about our pain. So Mary goes out. She throws herself at Jesus' feet and she says, Lord, if you would have been here, not only would Lazarus be alive, but my heart would not be broken. Martha's heart would not be broken. Underneath that question is that question, Lord, do you even care? And look what happens. Right in the middle of that, in verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, it says that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, they replied. And it's 1135, Jesus wept. Has there ever been a more pregnant theological statement in all of Scripture? Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Did he weep because he was sad that Lazarus died? No way. In verse 5 or verse 4, he says this to the disciples, right? He looks at them all and he says that this will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so the Son of Man may be glorified. Jesus knew that Lazarus wasn't going to be dead forever, that he was going to do something incredible. Jesus already knew the outcome. So why is Jesus weeping? Why about six verses later when he shows up at the tomb and he sees Mary and Martha there together and their brokenness and all these mourners that are weeping, why is he deeply moved again? If he already knows that in about four minutes they're gonna roll away a stone and Lazarus is gonna come walking out of that tomb. Why doesn't he look at him and just say, hey, listen, calm down. It's going to be unbelievably okay. I'm going to do something so miraculous in a moment that you wouldn't believe it if I told you. So just hang in there. He doesn't say a word of that to them. He just weeps. God's heart was broken with theirs. Even though he knew this incredible miraculous moment was coming where he would be glorified, he still was broken with the hurt of humanity. And I find this so incredibly comforting 
that even in the middle of my deep sorrow, sadness, brokenness, hurt, fear, whatever it is, even when God knows the outcome, even when God knows the way things are going to play out, God still hurts alongside of creation. God is not indifferent to your pain. He's not sitting around the outside of the edge going, hey, just get over it. Rub some dirt on it. Seriously, do some push-ups. You'll be fine. He is, Jesus weeps, and he's deeply moved. And I find this unbelievably remarkable, that pain and hurt in life are real, and God is not indifferent. He's not a God just standing on the sidelines watching you be, be broken. And we see that play out with Mary and Martha. But what's even cooler is that in the middle of that, Jesus often speaks into the middle of our pain. But he doesn't do it in the way that we wish he would. He doesn't do it in the, hey, Treb, listen, it's going to be fine, calm down. I've got it okay. It's going to be a little bit of a difficult season, but things are going to come together. He doesn't tell us that, and he doesn't tell Mary and Martha that. Instead, he asks them essentially the same questions in two different ways. So when he looks at Martha, right, and they have this interaction, and he says, your brother will rise again, and she says, no, I know he will on the last day, and he looks at her and he says this, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So in the middle of her grief, Jesus speaks into it and he says, Do you believe that I am who I have always told you that I am? Do you trust me? That is essentially what he is asking her. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that I am who I have always told you that I am? He has the exact same interaction with Mary, right? They're on the other side of the tomb. They're waiting for that stone to be rolled away. Both Mary and Martha are there, and Martha pipes up and she says, we can't roll away the stone, right? Because he's been dead for four days. And then Jesus said this to him, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Saying this, do you believe that I am who I always told you that I am. Do you trust me? That in the middle of their pain, in the middle of what is deeply real, in a, in a moment where God is not indifferent at all, he asks essentially the same question twice. Do you trust me? And do you believe that I am who I always have been? And I find this question incredibly powerful in my life because I believe it's what Jesus keeps saying to me, saying, Treb, I have never left you. I have never forsaken you. I have never walked out on you. Do you believe that today I am that same God? Or do you believe today, after 40 years, I'm gonna start walking out on you? Do you believe that I am who I always have said I was? Do you trust me? In the middle of pain and hurt and fear, right? Our memories become incredibly short. We forget that for 30 whatever years of our lives or 20 years or 50 years, God has been at work and he has been moving and he has been beautiful and he has been faithful because in the moment of fear and desperation, we get short memories and God looks at Mary and Martha and he says to them both, do you believe I am who I always have said I was? that all those times that we've had, all the things I've walked you through, do you think they've changed now? 
Do you trust me? And I think that, that, that the Lord often speaks into our pain the same way. Not with, I'm going to make it better. Calm down. It's going to be fine. But he speaks into it by saying, do you think now is the time where I will leave you when I've never left you? Do you think now is a time where I will forsake you when I have never forsaken you? Do you think now is a time I'm going to let you just fail alone when I have never left you alone? And in those moments of our fear and insecurities and panic, we have to be willing to take a deep breath and say, no, God, I believe you are who you say you are. My pain is real and you are not indifferent, but I believe that you are God. And in both of those statements, right, he's pointing to his unbelievable divinity. I am the resurrection and the life. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see God's glory? He often speaks in the middle of our pain with that. Do you really not believe that everything that we've done up until this point, all the ways that I have worked and protected and provided and walked alongside of you, carried you, moved in you and through you, that I'm going to stop now? And finally, it takes us to that fourth place, which is even in the darkest night, God is always and forever at work. We see that played out incredibly in two different places. One at the very beginning where he says to the disciples, look, the sickness will not end in death. It's for God's glory so that he may be glorified. And then he has that moment where he prays in front of everyone and he says, Father, hear me. I know that you always hear me. So I'm not really saying it asking you. I'm actually saying it so these people around here can hear me say it so that you, they will know that you sent me. What that means is that this pain and this suffering and even Lazarus' death were a movement pointing to God's glory. And that God allowed that moment of pain even in the lives of Mary and Martha so that he could be glorified and his name could be lifted up and people would praise who he was. God is always at work, even in the middle of your most difficult, desperate, pain-filled night for his glory, not for your pain. He stands in front of that tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. And one of the single greatest miracles in all of scripture for his glory. We see this in the life of Paul in the book of Acts. As I read through that, dozens of times as we were kind of preparing, I thought, man, I don't know that I could ever walk through that. Three years of beatings and violence and death threats and imprisonments and loneliness and abandonment, shipwrecks and snake bites, all to stand trial to die before the most brutal emperor because you called me to go. But as we hit chapter 28, the book of Acts, we begin to see God do some incredible things. We begin to God see God show up in powerful ways and the gospel enters Rome and through the vehicle of Rome will enter the known world and eventually show up in the middle of your life. That God is always and forever at work even in our darkest night, even in that moment where we think he cannot possibly be here. God is always and forever at work. And we see that truth in scripture. So I don't know what you're walking through. I have no idea. But what we see evidence in scripture is that God has not forgotten you. 
And then we have to be at a place where we will shout down the voices in our life that want to say, God is gone. God has vacated me. God has abandoned me. God has left me to die alone in my grief and my suffering. We have to shout that down because our entire lives are proof of his movement and existence that he is always and forever moving, that pain and hurt are real, and he is not indifferent, and he speaks often in the middle of it, but he is always at work in it and through it. God never promises to prevent your pain but always to prevail in it. And as the book of Acts draws to a close, we see that truth. Paul just waiting to stand trial and the church goes on. This is truth. As hard as it is to grasp and anchor ourselves, it is truth. And this morning, you may be standing in the middle of a time where you just feel empty or you just feel vacated or you just are wondering. But if there's ever been a more complete picture of God's extravagant, incredible love for us, it's communion. It's this this table, this participation in this that God's promised to always be with us and never forsake us. It is evidence that God is so deeply in love with creation that he sent his son Jesus to not just die that we might have eternal life, but die so that we might have true, real, abundant life right now. True, abundant life begins, and eternal life begins not when we die, but it begins right in this moment. And that table is a picture of God's perfect love played out. And it is as much for you when the day is great as it is when the day is dark. God is always and forever at work. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to gather here and open your word for the moments that we have together, for the celebration of this table, celebration of life, for the celebration that even in dark moments, God, I'm not downplaying those because those moments are incredibly real. But even in those moments we don't understand, we can't grasp, you are always and forever moving. So God, we ask that you would hear our cry would move in our hearts and that you would draw us close to you. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior, and our Redeemer. It's almost unthinkable that God would send his own son to die for us, and yet it's exactly what he did. The worst possible moment in human history, which is the death of God's son on the cross, was the very moment of our redemption. And that is what this table is a remembrance of. This table is not a denominational table. It is the Lord's table. And he invites anyone who is trusted in him alone for their salvation to come and partake of what he has provided. That on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and having given thanks to God, he broke it. He tore it apart and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, torn and broken for you. Take and eat of it and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant sealed for you, given 
to you for the forgiveness of sins. Take it. And that every time that you take this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the saving death of the Lord Jesus. And we do it until he comes back. That is what we do. That we take this and we remember what he did. That he gave his life for us. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your incredible, marvelous presence with us. We do not deserve the name of Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, that you choose to inhabit our pain and our life and feel our pain with us. You are beyond our ability to comprehend. You put the stars in their place. You created the universe. And yet you dwell here with us. We thank you for the salvation that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no more precious thing to us. We ask that the Holy Spirit would go out. Draw men to himself. Fill us and send us out to proclaim the gospel. And the hope of the resurrection and the life. We pray this in your risen and exalted name. Amen. Would the servers please come forward? So if you are gluten intolerant, we have some crackers here that won't make you feel horrible. And if you aren't, then uh, what you're going to do is we're going to do this by method of intinction, which is a fancy way of saying that you take the bread from the basket and you're going to dunk it in the cup and you're going to eat it.